what a what a time of rejoicing this is. What a what a wonderful opportunity you've given us to to get up bright and early and come to your house for worship, for fellowship, for the breaking of the bread, for prayer, to hear word. God, may we not be disappointed in any facet of our worship today. God, may you satisfy the insatiable appetite and the unquenchable thirst that we have within us to to hear from you and to dine with you. Bless the preparation, the proclamation of your word. Multiply it to the level of your satisfaction. May you be glorified. May your people be blessed. This is your servant's prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much, Dr. Harris, for leading us in worship this morning as well. Sister Argo leading our music. Amen. I want to invite your attention to uh, Acts chapter 2 once again, just three verses, verse 40 uh, through 42. And with many words and with many other words, he testified and exalted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3000 souls were added to them. Verse 42. uh, We want to shine the sermonic spotlight here today. And they contended steadfastly in the apostles doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. I want to preach today from the subject, trademark Christians. Trademark Christians. Will you say that with me? Trademark Christians. Amen. Many companies in society have what's known as a trademark. A trademark is a sign, a symbol, a logo used to distinctly identify a particular company or a business. For example, when you see the Coca-Cola trademark, you know it's it's Coca-Cola. When you see the Pepsi trademark or the Walmart trademark, you know that it distinguishes them as those companies. Now, while some companies may resemble other companies in in, in terms of goods and services, the trademark displays the difference. In other words, CVS is trademark, although they sell drugs and Walgreens sell drugs, the trademark of those companies are going to be different. Well, in a manner of speaking, we could say that the trademark of the Christian faith is the Holy Spirit operating in the lives of believers. The initial outpouring of God's Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost infiltrated, impacted, and empowered 120 believers in Jesus Christ who were assembled there, as you remember, in Jerusalem, waiting on the promise, just as God had, just as Jesus had commanded them. Now, Peter preached that day, and about 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus and joined the church. What a tremendous day that was. I mean, you preach a sermon and 3,000 people come up and say, I want to be saved. I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. You can read Peter's powerful sermon in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 40. Verse 41, the outcome of Peter's preaching is stated this way. Then those who gladly, notice it said those who gladly, not grudgingly, But those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to the church. That's a lot of souls, and that's a lot of baptizing on one one day. Peter and them had to be busy. Peter's preaching is a testimony to the work of the Holy Spirit in the preaching event. 
Am I right about it? Now, when spirit-filled preaching of the gospel, spirit-filled preaching of the gospel takes place when God's spirit moves in and through the lives of his preachers, people get saved. People come to Jesus. Transformation happens. In other words, they make that change. Now, here's a footnote for you. Here's a footnote for you. Footnote. The devil hates God's called and anointed preachers and will do any and everything he can to discourage, disrupt, and destroy preachers. He will use anybody and everybody he can to stop preaching because he hates good, spirit-filled preaching. Now, he doesn't mind pulpit entertainment. He doesn't mind theological discourses that pits Christians against Christians and denominations against denominations, usually over trivial, nitpicking, non-salvific, essential matters. He doesn't mind theological, I'm sorry, theoretical dissertations about how God wants his people to indulge in excessive materialism uh, and and boast about how much stuff uh, we've been blessed with. The devil doesn't doesn't mind that at all. Uh, He's not concerned about the expounding of 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 sanctimonious psychobabble about how to improve one's self-image, win friends, and influence people. He could care less about poor petiers waving the flag of patriotism, nationalism, and political correct mumbo-jumbo, a.k.a. garbage, particularly around election time. He could care less about that. Those things don't faze him at all. But what really gets his goat, what really gets under his skin, what really sticks in the devil's crawl is good, spirit-filled, anointed preaching. Why? Because preaching that's Holy Spirit-generated, motivated, and disseminated brings about radical changes in lives and in attitudes. It brings about radical changes in, in attitudes and behaviors. For example, preaching under the influence of, of God's Holy Spirit draws people into a saving relationship with Jesus, evidenced by drastic changes in their lives. How many of us have had our lives changed drastically because we heard good spirit, feel anointed preaching? How many of us have come to church and heard good preaching and as a result of anointed preaching left the church house determined to ask God to help us change our ways? Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone 
is in Christ, he, of course, or she is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's what anointed, anointed preaching will do. Old things have passed away. That's why, that's why pimps stop pimping. That's why prostitutes stop prostituting. That's why gangbangers stop gangbanging. That's why hustlers stop hustling and go out and get a real job and, 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 and work to earn their money instead of breaking into folks' house and running con, gang, con games and schemes. So because of the Holy Spirit's empowerment upon Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, the church grew from 120 faithful followers to approximately 3,000 members in one single day. And these new church members were serious about their relationship with God. They weren't playing games. They were not trying to impress people. They were not going through the motions. They were serious about their relationship to Jesus, about their commitment to him. Notice verse 42 in the text, it says, They continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayer. The message of verse 42 is this. Those spirit-filled Christians, spirit-filled people and believers in Jesus Christ became trademark Christians. Now let's examine four distinct qualities that identified them as such. First, trademark Christians are devoted to studying the Word of God. The trademark Christians, like they're, they're, they're devoted, devoted to studying the Word of God, committed to studying the Word of God. Notice verse 42, and they continued, that means on an ongoing basis, steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. The apostles were the teachers. They had been with Jesus and they had been taught by Jesus for three years. Before Jesus departed for heaven, he commanded his apostles, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, whatever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So says Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Now, the teaching of the apostles included all Jesus taught them from the Old Testament writings as well as all he taught them about his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, uh, and, and his second coming. So it was that Peter, James, and John, and the other apostles were walking and talking libraries. They were live in tangible Google search engines. They were, they were textbooks and resource documentations for the new believers. However, it was up to the new believers to avail themselves to all of the apostolic resources set before them. It's like when we hit the college campus, we, we got the library, the professors have, have office hours, they're there, they're wonderful resources, but it's up to us to hit the books. It's up to us to go to the library. It's up to us to study. God had made everything available to these new believers through the apostles. Luke tells us that's exactly what they did. They were steadfast in, in the quest and acquisition of knowledge about Jesus. They were hungering and thirsting to learn all they could learn about Jesus. They yearned to know what he expected of them and how they could be 
uh, best satisfy Jesus' expectations. They craved information. Anybody here that craves information about the word of God? They craved information that would help them get this now, set goals, establish priorities, and carry out objectives that promoted Jesus' agenda and not their own. They wanted to know what steps to take in order to live lives that please God. That's why they were steadfast at the, to the apostles' teaching and apostles' teaching. The attitudes of these early church members remind me of the words of a hymn entitled More About Jesus. The second stanza and chorus states, more about Jesus, let me learn. More of his holy will discern spirit of God my teacher be showing the things of God to me and then the chorus says more more about Jesus tell me more more about Jesus more of his saving fullness see more of his love who died for me tell me more about Jesus they just couldn't get enough one of the most accurate barometers we can use to measure Our commitment to Jesus Christ is to examine our steadfast devotion to biblical teaching. When it comes to biblical teaching, for example, we can ask ourselves these questions. How much time do I spend on Facebook in comparison to the time that I spend in his book? Now, can I clarify something here? There's nothing wrong with Facebook in and of itself. I think it's a good tool. It can, it can bring about some good things. But, but the issue is, the question on the table is, how much time do I spend Facebooking in comparison to how much time do I spend studying in God's book? How much time do I spend reading my Bible in comparison to how much time I spend surfing the web? Watching television and and watching movies. How many Sunday school classes and midweek Bible studies have I attended over the past month? How much of my day is invested in, 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 in learning from the word of God? Just just personal inventory. I have to ask myself this question. Not not finger pointing, but it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother, my sister, but it's me, oh Lord. But second, trademark Christians are devoted to fellowship. Verse 42 states again, they continued steadfast in the fellowship. The word used in the text for fellowship is kononia which denotes close association characterized by, by, by the sharing of time and the sharing of ideas and the sharing of resources in order to support, encourage, and strengthen one another and carry out the mission. Fellowship among Christians is vital for numerous reasons. One is the Bible does not condone nor does it encourage long-ranger Christianity. These modernistic ideas, such as I can be a Christian all by myself. I don't, I don't need to attend worship. I don't, I don't need to attend a, a Bible study. I don't need to associate myself with other believers. These are alien concepts to, to, the, new Christian, to, to the New Testament Christianity. God never in, intended for us to be alone. In fact, you know, he sent his disciples out two by two. 
Jesus never intended for us to be alone. In fact, initially he called 12 disciples to walk with him. Jesus never intended for us to be alone as we make our way through this Christian journey, as we traverse the landscape of mountains and and valleys and joys and sorrows. God intended for us to be in fellowship with one another. What a fellowship. What a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting um, fellowship is a trademark of Christianity. Nearly a century ago, Pastor G. Campbell Morgan visited a church member who had been, a, had been absent from church for a long time. And one thing about pastors, if they really pastoring, if they really love God, if they li- really love the sheep, they know when folks aren't there. And, and they really get concerned when people aren't there. I'm concerned when I don't see people for, for a, a, a while. You know, a Sunday might pass or two, but then after that I'm concerned, particularly if they are those who are, are here on a consistent basis. Well, Pastor Morgan noticed that this man had been absent from church for a while. And uh, he went to visit him, and they were sitting there near the fireplace enjoying the heat generated by the red-hot cold. And the man informed Pastor Morgan that he did not need the fellowship of the church anymore. He didn't need the, 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 the fellowship of the church anymore. He didn't need to be with the, the brothers I- anymore. He, he didn't need those kind of things in his spiritual walk. And without saying a word, Pastor Morgan took the poker and reached into the fire. And he selected one red hot coal, and he separated it from the other coals. And, and as they sat there, it wasn't long before the single coal lost its fire. And so it was that red hot band of believers in Jerusalem turned the world upside down, not because they were long rangers, not because they tried to do it all by themselves, but because they stayed in fellowship with the other red hot coals. As a result, they were devoted. They were committed to the fellowship because they realized that one coal burning hot by itself will soon burn out, burn cold. We need the fellowship. We we need each other. We need to be together. We we need to call our own huddle sometimes. We we need to we need to crowd each other's shoulders sometimes. We need to we need to bear each other's burdens sometimes. We need the fellowship of the church, and there's nothing like it. There's nothing like the fellowship of the church. And one of the truest tests of trademark Christianity is is our devotion to the to the fellowship. There's just something special about being with other Christians. Because we love and serve the same Savior and Lord and because we we are born of the same Spirit and because we have received the same baptism, we have some things in common that you just will not find in the general population. We, we can talk about some things that, 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 that our unsaved co-workers can't identify with. We can get into a level of conversations that our frat brothers and our, and our unsaved frats and our unsaved sorority sisters, they won't be able to identify with this kind of stuff. Because this spiritual stuff we talk about is discerning to those who know God. The natural man can't see it. And sometimes we just need to get deep 
in our discussion about the things of God with other folk who know God like we know God. Now, now, footnote here, being out and, and about in the general population has its place. Working with people, going to school with people, playing on sports teams with people, attending social functions and events with people who don't know Jesus certainly has its place. God never called us to be isolationists away from people who need to know him. In fact, we ought to be out among the general populace. How else can we be salt and light for people who are lost if we isolate ourselves? But being among non-believers puts us in a strategic position to win them to Christ. But here's my point. We need to be devoted to the fellowship in order to be strengthened ourselves. Am I right about it? And in order to strengthen others because iron definitely sharpens iron. And we need to be in fellowship in order to increase our mission effectiveness. One person can't do it all when we were on the street corner. Martin Luther King and Junior Boulevard and, 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 South, and, and, and a Highway 17 participating in Christ, cold clothes and, and cake. We couldn't do, one person couldn't do all that by themselves. One person couldn't hold up the sign and, and serve cake at the same time. One person couldn't give out clothes and cut cake at the same time. We needed to be in fellowship. We, when the fellowship is, when the fellowship is, is tight, uh, uh, um, ministry productivity uh, significantly increases. But third, trademark Christians are devoted to celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Verse 42 reveals they continue steadfastly in the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread refers to communion services that were celebrated in remembrance of Jesus and were patterned after the Last Supper. Paul recounts the progress of the celebration in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 26. Paul said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take ye, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. In other words, as often as you eat, and drink, you tell the story. Over and over and over again, they went through the process of eating and drinking and telling the story. Now, I might add here that this was not a common occurrence, but it was a sacred occasion. This was not a casual occurrence. It was a sacred occasion. I don't believe the disciples back in the day, could get through communion without tearing up. I just don't believe they could come to this table without, without tearing up as they remembered Jesus. I, I don't believe they could come to the table and take communion without choking up and sometimes even breaking down as they relived, recounted, 
and related the details of the cold, cruel, and callous way in which Jesus died upon the cross, paying the sin debt of all who called upon his name. Oh, may we follow the example of those early believers. May we not allow time. May we not allow affluence. May we not allow influence. May we not allow intellect or economic gain, or anything else cause us to become casual at this table. May we not allow anything to allow us to become careless at this table. May we not allow anything to to move us to become conceited at this table. May we not allow anything or anybody cause us or push us to become cliquish at this table. Rather, let us be steadfast at the table, remembering as Isaiah 53, 5 declares he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. We ought to be steadfast at the table, committed to the table, devoted to the table. Fourth and finally, trademark Christians are devoted to prayer. Verse 42 informs us they continued steadfastly. Help me somebody. In prayer. That means they were some praying folk. They took, they took the words of Jesus. You know, to pray, man, man, I always pray. Folks ought to always pray and not faint. Pray about everything. Paul, Paul's, Paul said, don't, don't be worrying about stuff. Don't be anxious about stuff, but just pray about it. Make your supplication uh, unto the Lord and then thank God for what he's going to do. Thank God for what he has done. Thank him for what he's doing now. Thank him for what he's going to do. Pray. Praying, praying, praying. Members of the inaugural church took prayer and, and, and prayed and prayed and, and kept on praying. They viewed prayer as one preacher explained as the slender nerve that moved the omnipotent hand of God. Prayer for them was an expression of their dependence upon God. When they prayed, they said, God, I cannot make it. On my own. The road gets rough. The going gets tough. Sometimes the hills are hard to climb. They pray. Somebody prayed for me. Had me on their mind. Took the time and prayed. I'm so glad. Good hope prayed. The deacons prayed. The deaconesses prayed. The pastors prayed. The church prayed. Oh. Prayer was an expression of their dependence upon God. Father, I stretch my hands to thee. That's what prayer says. I stretch my hands. No other help I know. If thou withdraw thy hand from me, oh, whether shall I go? I have no place else to go. Nobody else to turn to. 
no other help I know. They realize one of their trademarks, they realize that if anything supernatural, that, that is anything that only God can do. If anything supernatural was going to happen, it would be credited to, as James put it, the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous availing much. Can I tell you some good hope? If anything supernatural is going to happen in this church, if it's going to keep on happening in this church, it's not going to be because pastor is so good. It's not going to be because we got this thing all together. It's going to be because of prayer. Yeah. Yeah. Now, some years ago, a study was done by an agricultural school in Iowa. And it reported that production of 100 bushels of corn from one acre of land required 400,000 pounds of water. 6,800 pounds of oxygen, 5,200 pounds of carbon, 160 pounds of nitrogen, 125 pounds of potassium, 75 pounds of yellow sulfur, as well as other elements too numerous to list. In addition, and in addition to all of these ingredients, the land still needed and the crop still needed rain, and sunshine, but not just rain and sunshine, but it needed rain and sunshine at the appropriate time. Although many hours of the farmer's labor was needed, get this, it was estimated that only 5% of the produce of a farm can be attributed to human efforts. Now where does the rest come from? What that means is that if you are a farmer, you best be praying. What that means is that those of us who enjoy eating, help me somebody, we best be praying. If you got some stuff in the stove or on the stove that you're going to eat today, you best be praying. Yes, sir. If you're going out to eat today after church, when you sit down, whether you bow your head, close your eyes, or open your eyes and look up to heaven, you best be praying. Jesus said in John 15 and 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit for without me you can do nothing. One of the essential ways of abiding in Jesus and allowing him to abide in us is through prayer. Every time we pray, we connect up with Jesus. So it is today, trademark Christians are serious about their relationship with God. Trademark Christians know what prayer can do. Trademark Christians have faced uncertain circumstances, unstable conditions, unfavorable situations, and faced unsurmountable odds, but they took it to God and prayer, and God brought them out. Trademark. 